The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Leviticus, chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. Uh, Brother Tabor and I had a discussion a few weeks ago uh, about constructing the introduction to sermons and Bible lessons. And I had made a comment on that, on that Sunday morning that I hated to write introductions. I'd, I'd rather just get right into the heart of a sermon and get, get started without bothering with all the warm-up material. And Brother Tabor agreed with me that introductions are the most consuming part of sermon preparation, at least it is to me. Once I get past the introduction, things flow effortlessly. That's 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 what it is in, in my uh, um, in uh, what's the word I want to use? The as far as I'm concerned, the way that I that I like to prepare things, everything goes easily after introductions are done. But anybody that's ever preached a sermon, uh, had to speak before people, you know, the first thing that you have to do, you got to give an introduction. So you can get people interested in what you're going to speak about, your topic. And that might be the reason that so many of you fall asleep before I get to the first point. is because I'm not very good at introductions. And so what I've done just now is given you about two minutes on introductions that has nothing to do with the introduction or anything to do with my sermon tonight. That's just what you've got to do sometimes. You've got to introduce things. But it is necessary for me to uh, give introductions to my sermons because I usually preach two, three, four, five-part sermons, and uh, I do that because you won't stay long enough to hear it all at one time. I can't speak long enough to give it to you all at one time, so it's necessary for us to back up a little bit and review some things to connect sermon points to the ones in the previous messages. So our discussion tonight is about the trespass offering, and it's based in the text of Leviticus chapter 5. And this is an important offering because of the gospel. It and the sin offering are the ones that we're most familiar with because these are a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, even though you might not have learned the terms when you first got saved or maybe even after you've been saved for a while, uh, these offerings were present in your first apprehension of Christ, your first understanding of the gospel. We know this because... The sacrifice of Christ includes the forgiveness of sins. We're justified by faith. We are declared righteous before God. The guilt of sin is removed by our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, as we were talking tomorrow, uh, this morning in, in uh, forum class, faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. The Holy Spirit attracts us to the gospel with the knowledge that the punishment that's due to us has been placed upon Christ and therefore because of his death on the cross we don't have to bear that punishment ourselves. And the sin offering and the trespass offering speak to that particular aspect of the gospel of Christ. Now we see in the text of Leviticus 5 and 6 uh, some representative sins and categories of them. In chapter 5, verse number 15, there are sins against God's holiness. And that's the first category of sins in this chapter. So that's where we begin our study of this lesson, guilt from sins against holiness. In verse number 15, Leviticus 5, 
If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks with thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. All sin is against God, but this category concerns sins that are in the first table of the law. So this is mainly about worshiping God. Uh, as we've noted, there are many details in these offerings. Uh, Israel's system of worship was a very complicated system, which doesn't bode very well for people who, who want to make worship and the doctrines of the faith very simplistic. And it's odd that someone would say, well, if that's difficult to understand, then it must not be the gospel of Christ. When you know very well that the Bible is the gospel, I mean, the whole thing comprehended is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are things in the Bible that are very difficult to understand. These things are not meant for us to pick them up in just a few hours of reading, or a few minutes of reading, or a few hours of study, or skimming the text. The simplistic gospel of lightning-quick evangelism leads to many bogus confessions because people don't really understand the gospel. They don't contemplate what the gospel is truly about. The work of Christ on the cross is not simplistic. I think we've seen that. We've proved that. And if you're going to learn these things, you've got to be ready to invest some time. Now, many of you can attest that it's only after months of listening and gathering parts from all different sections of the Bible that you finally see some of the light and see how the doctrines of God's Word fit together. But I do hear complaints that some of the doctrines that we teach are hard to understand. Well, they're not understood because man naturally resists these things. The carnal mind doesn't embrace these doctrines because they're foreign to our natural thinking. And so the Holy Spirit has to enlighten us to these, these different things. There we are naturally resistant to them. And so if we make a complaint, well, that's just too hard to learn, therefore we're not going to try to learn it, then we trust man's ability rather than the Holy Spirit's ability to reveal truth to us. And he can always take these things and open up our heart to them so that we can understand them. So these doctrines are not for 15 minutes. They're not for 15 months. Uh, I've been at this for more than 40 years, and I can tell you that I'm amazed, continually amazed, at the marvelous work of God and so many things that I can learn. And so I, I think it's audacious for anyone to say that we ought to be able to understand the unsearchable wisdom of God without 15 minutes of searching the unsearchable wisdom of God. At least we could try that, I would think. But the point that I would like to make is that there are many ways that Israel could sin against God through mistakes in worship. The, these things are hard. There's so much to, to grasp. There's so much to, to remember. There's so much human nature to fight against. It was common for Israel to sin against holiness. Not only through ignorance of things that they were supposed to do but they didn't do, but also willful ignorance that is just simply inherent in the human nature. Now I want to uh, talk about worship here again this evening and we looked at some things last week in the first table of the law. I actually look at the first four commandments were, were a pretty good uh, outline for worship. And there's another thing that I want to mention tonight about worship that we don't find in the Ten Commandments, but definitely this is a part of Israel's worship. This is the law of the tithe. And we see the law of the tithe 
constantly, consistently throughout the book of Exodus. The tithe is given back to God in recognition of his providential care. It's an act of faith and it was one of Israel's main parts of their worship. The tithe was central and for this reason in the New Testament Jesus addressed Jewish mistakes about the tithe and how that they had changed it uh, to be a means of justification rather than uh, an, an, an evidence of the faith that they had in, in Christ or faith they have in God that it represents. But in no way in the New Testament did Jesus ever speak against the tithe. The tithe is holy to the Lord. I'd like you to turn to the 27th chapter of Leviticus where we can see that the tithe is a part of holy things and how it is possible to be guilty of sinning against God in holy things and one of those ways is with the misuse or not paying our tithes. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse number 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed." These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. There the scripture says the tithe belongs to the Lord. That is actually what makes it holy. The tithe is the Lord's. Now, let, let's stay here for just a minute so we can get a feel for the importance of worshiping God through the tithe. An argument against New Testament tithing is the change from the Old Testament to the New Testament worship system. But there, many say there is no tithe any longer because all of that's been changed from the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So they argue things like the Sabbath, that there is no, to be no Sabbath worship because that changed. Old Testament laws have been changed to the New Testament. Well, of course, we do know uh, each of you are here today because there has been a change. There is a change from the old to the new. Only a few people are going to argue that point. But there are people like Seventh-day Adventists that, that argue about the change of days and say there is no change of days. But there's not really a lot of use in us contending with them because their whole system is a works-based system, works-based righteousness, which fits in perfectly with Jewish Sabbatarianism. So we're not going to argue too much with them. The rest of us agree, though, that the Old Testament Jews, uh, the day that they worshipped, the seventh day, was changed in the New Testament to the first day of the week. And this is because the work of Christ in redemption and being raised from the dead on Sunday is a superior work to the work of creation that's commemorated by the Old Testament Sabbath. So the New Testament is clear about this, that disciples met on the first day of the week and that was the corporate day of worship. The day changed but the principle of one day that set aside for worship did not change. Now the Sabbath preceded the formal introduction of the law dating back to uh, creation back to the very beginning when God created man. He put the Sabbath in place at that time. He put Adam in the garden and Adam observed a day by resting on the same day that God rested. That creational principle has not changed in the New Testament. There are other things like, like the same would be true of the woman's submission to her husband. 
New Testament enlightenment about the role of women didn't change the creational principle that women are still to be in subjection to their husbands, just as Eve was in subjection to Adam. We see that very clearly stated in 1 Timothy when Paul used that principle as proof that women are not to be pastors of churches. And you might hold on to this information a little bit because when we get into the uh, church at Thyatira, this was uh, uh, one of the problems of that church. But in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul wrote, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the uh, transgression. Now, women are to be subject to their husbands. That's shown in that passage there in 1 Timothy, also in Ephesians chapter 5. So the creational uh, principle stays in force as it always has. Now, the reason that I mentioned Sabbath and, and women in, in this case, which seems to be totally off our subject, I mention these because the tithe falls into the same category of principles that have been established before the law was given. So if you search for the tithe in the Old Testament, you won't actually find it in the Genesis account of creation, but it doesn't show up until Genesis chapter 40, verse number 20, with Abraham, and that's where Abraham paid tithes of his spoils to Melchizedek. Now, as good students of God's Word, you, you know that Melchizedek is a type of the priesthood of Christ, and that Christ has an eternal priesthood. So before the law was given... Abraham knew that he was supposed to pay a tithe. Now the question is, where do we see that anybody ever told Abraham to pay a tithe? Why did he do it? Where did it come from? Well, there is no explanation in the scriptures, so the only reason that I can think of is that this is also a creational principle. That everybody knew that they were supposed to tithe, just as they knew that the Sabbath was a different day. That that, that is a day that's set aside for worship to the Lord. So the tithe, I think, falls into that creational principle. Then later, the Sabbath was incorporated into the law. We know that, the fourth commandment. Uh, it's incorporated into the law. And also, we see that the tithe was incorporated into the laws that God gave Moses. But there are many that say the Sabbath and the tithe are a part of ceremonial law. Therefore, they have been done away at the cross. And so now we live in an age of grace giving. And I find it very odd that those who say, well, this is the time of grace giving. We don't have to tithe any longer. Paul said where grace abounded, uh, where uh, sin abounded rather, that grace did much more abound. That proves to us that grace is greater than the law. Well, how is it then that people who say grace is greater than law give less under grace than they do under the law? The, The statistics show that most Christians give I mean, by far, most Christians give only about 2 to 4% of their income living under grace giving. So I just wonder, how does that work? Well, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ who has an unchangeable priesthood. And the principle of giving the tithe, the 10%, is equally unchanging. 10% belongs to the Lord. And we'll emphasize again what the Word of God says. The tithe is holy to the Lord. And so not to give the tithe is to sin against God's holiness. Now, if you uh, give the tithe and and uh, if you want to... Uh, uh, give to other things. If there's if there's a a, a change in this in, in any place, then there is a, 
we have to look at this as what is the ceremonial, what things are changed in the ceremonial, what things have passed away, and, and the tithe, any other amounts, don't show up any place in the Bible. It's always this consistent 10%, and Jesus taught it in the New Testament. So there are ways that Israel could sin in worship. They also had trouble with the tithe. This is why there are penalties imposed upon not giving the tithe. So if you go on reading a little bit further there in Leviticus chapter 27, you'll find penalties that are imposed when the tithe is not given as it's supposed to be given. So any time that we break the first four commandments, those are violations of worship. Uh, those commandments, there's only one one God that we worship. There are to be no idols. Uh, there is to be no blasphemy. The Sabbath must be kept holy. And then we can put into that category, in those categories as well, that we are to obey the Lord in all things, and that includes the tithe. That's holy to the Lord, and not to give it is a sin against his holiness. Now, I want to move on then into the second category, and this is guilt from sins against commandments. Verse number 17, And if a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not or did not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. When I say guilt against commandments, this is just a general category. And I've inserted this to include all commandments that are uh, in, the, in the law. And I do that simply because that's the order that we have in the text. It started out with sins against holiness, then it talks about these sins against commandments. So what we need to discuss here is all the other things that were included in Israel's worship that we don't see in the Ten Commandments. They're not listed in the Ten Commandments. They are comprehended in the obedience to the law. These are all these other things that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And when Moses received the law, it wasn't just those Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments were the moral law. He also received instructions for the whole of Israel's worship. Now, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we are also familiar with this. Verses 3 through 17 are the Ten Commandments. And then next is the, the interlude that comes after that in which the people were afraid to speak directly with God. And in Exodus 20, verse number 22... And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. God talked with Moses when he was on the mountain. And then he goes on to recite without a break what he just said in the Ten Commandments. Then goes into verse number 24. There are instructions for altars. He goes on to chapter 21. There are laws for servants and kidnapping and restitution for crimes. And the recounting of that conversation goes on for several more chapters until you get through chapter 30. And by that time, there is a complete system of tabernacle worship that's unfolded. Its structure, its furnishings, its priests, its garments, and all the sacrifices. All of that is given to Moses when he was on the mountain. Now, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, this is what he's speaking of here. All of those things, all of the commandments that were given to Moses, all of these things of worship are comprehended. And so, if, a, if something is missed there, if something is not done, then there must be a sacrifice made to atone for it. There's a trespass offering made for those sins. Even if they didn't know that they had done wrong, they were still guilty. And with so many details of what to do, is it possible that they wouldn't know that they were supposed to do something? Well, of course. Someone said that there are over 5,000 commandments in the Bible. 
I don't know. I've, I've never counted those. I'll take their word and assume that is correct. And the operative thing here is I don't know. I don't know what all of these 5,000 commandments are, but if I break those commandments, I'm a lawbreaker regardless. Because God said it, it's his law. Even if I don't know it, I am a lawbreaker. Now, I'll confess something to you here for a minute. This happened a long time ago. Well, not really all that long ago. Um, I was on my way to the Shepherds Conference, and I was excited to go as usual. And uh, I just passed the 580-680 interchange when there was a, a, a CHP motorcycle that pulled up behind me and flagged me over. And he came up and he knocked on my window and he said, do you know how fast you were driving? And I said, no, I don't know. That was true and it was untrue. When he pulled up behind me, I, I hadn't been paying attention to the speedometer, but as soon as he pulled up behind me, I looked at it and I did know. But I assumed that he meant, did you know how fast you were driving? That his question was about way back there when I didn't know he was behind me. Then I didn't know how fast I was driving. So you have to think about this. How do you answer this question? I answered the question, no, I don't know, because I thought that was a better answer than saying, yes, I did know, but I did it anyway. And uh, so both answers were right. But I could have said, yes, I know exactly how fast I was driving. I did it anyway. What's your next question? Um, well, whether I knew or not, that's immaterial. So I just could have said, why do you want to know? That's a stupid question, isn't it? I was breaking the law. He's a law enforcer. We both know how this is going to end. So you don't even need to ask me these questions. So all that I can say about that is of all the vices that I have, speeding is one of them. So don't let anybody tell you that rules are meant to be broken. The CHP does not buy that, and God does not buy that either. Even if, if you don't know it, and you do it, it's a sin. Now let's notice two ways to sin against commandments. First of all, there are sins of commission. You steal, you lie, you slander, you lust. And I could keep going. There are plenty of lists in both Old and New Testaments that are very direct. They are sins of commission. These are acts that you do. Uh, you did the wrong thing. There is no explanation needed. Thou shalt not, but you did it anyway. Sins of commission required a trespass offering. And we find here if an, Israel, an Israelite cursed his neighbor, then that required a trespass offering. It's not a sin offering. Uh, because he has a sinful nature, it's a trespass offering because he did the actual deed. And there are thousands of possibilities here. So it means that likely you are involved of these in these types of sins every day, sins of commission. So it's impossible for us to make a claim that we're not sinners. The proof of that is too abundant. When the Bible says all have sinned, it's remarkably... Uh, obvious that we do, that it even has to be stated that all of us are sinners, but that's necessary because people don't think that way. They never consider the massive amount of evil that they do piles up against the holy God. Now, in those 5,000 commandments that somebody says they're in the Bible, the vast majority of those commandments are not what we would call really, really, really serious sins. We're not talking murder here. Not all sins are murder. Not all of them are armed robbery. And not some of them, not, not, they're not even worse than that in some people's minds, which would be things like drowning kittens. That's a whole lot worse. 
But it's not those things that people do. There are degrees of sin, and most people don't commit the worst sins. Most of you in here, I'm sure you haven't committed the worst sins that there are. But are we still sinners even though we haven't committed the worst? Well, the answer, of course, we are. Yes, we are. But that's the part that people don't get because they believe that the worst sinners are the ones that are not them. They're the ones that do the worst. So to them, sin is relative. If I'm just better than somebody else, then I'm okay because sin is relative. Well, the problem is that our sins are not judged according to what other people do. Our sins are between us and God. And I run into this a lot of times with people in church when they think that I'm picking on them. And uh, when I'm preaching about something, they think I'm picking on them. And they'll come to me and say, why did you say that about me? I don't do what they did. It doesn't matter what they did. Sin is between you and God, not between you, God, and somebody else. So we can't look at sin as being relative. Our sins are always bad, no matter what they are, because God requires perfection. God is perfect. He requires perfection, perfect obedience. Nobody's ever going to be saved on that basis because nobody will ever be perfectly obedient. You could not be saved by your obedience even if tomorrow you started, you never did another thing wrong the rest of your life. You still could not be saved by that obedience. Why? Because you've got a whole mass of sins behind you that you did do. And you have no way of taking care of those. So nobody can be saved by obedience. We can't do it perfectly. Well, the Israelites couldn't avoid all sin. Neither can we. So they need a trespass offering. They need a trespass offering for sins of commission as we do. So this animal sacrifice that's typical of Christ, dying for the sins of the guilty, that is their trespass offering. Now the second way that we sin against commandments is by sins of omission. What are sins of omission? Now, the best definition is given by James in James 4.17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So you can sin by doing something, that's a sin of commission, or you can sin by doing nothing, that's a sin of omission. Now, it's good for us to have a extensive background in the Ten Commandments because you may remember that when I taught through all of those, I told you that for every thou shalt not that is in the commandments, there is also a thou shalt. And it's just as important to do the thou shalt as it is not to do the thou shalt nots. So let's return to this classic example of tithing that we've talked about. And we remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe, the mint, and anise, and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Well, the Pharisees were very careful about tithing. They had, they had this down, the thou shalt of the tithe. But Jesus said, that's not good enough. You have that thou shalt, but you've also forgot others like judgment and mercy and faith. Now there are many people who are like the Pharisees in this way that they forget a lot of other things. They they want to make sure they got the tithe exactly right and so they'll ask questions like should I tithe on my gross or on my net? That's a good question. 
Some come and ask advice about investment. Should I tithe on my investment money? And when do I tithe on that money? What about a house? What if I sell my house? Do I have to tithe on, on that increase of selling my house? Or can I just invest that in another house? Well, I have some opinions on those questions. But those are not the questions that I hate to hear. Not when somebody comes to me and says, should I do this? The ones that I hate to hear are the questions that start with, do I have to? Do I have to do this? And that kind of question almost answers itself because you're already convicted and the answer to that question probably is yes, you have to. But the question reveals more. Do I have to reveals a heart of reluctance as if it's possible to give God too much. What if I bring too much and I wasn't supposed to bring that? I've cheated myself. Can you do that? Can you outgive God? Could you possibly give God too much? Now the question is better preceded by should I rather than do I have to. Um, but there could be some genuine confusion about this. And I realize Christians have questions about the tithe. Uh, imagine how much chaos they would be if Christians in the stock market were to bring a tithe for every increase in their stocks. What are they going to do about tomorrow when everything crashes? What do you do then? So do you save up the gain against the losses? How does that happen? What does God expect on the tithe there? Well, all I can tell you is this. You're never going to give out give God. So if you start tithing on your increases in the stock market every day, you're still not going to catch up with God. No matter how many losses that you take, it's impossible to give God too much. Now, another key point to recognize is that as good as the Pharisees were with the tithe, it had no effect on the areas that they missed. So there are many Christians that excuse themselves from service in the Lord's church because they think they can buy their way out of it. That is, if I give enough money, then I won't be expected to do anything else. Then here's another one. Some Christians think that large gifts, significant amounts of tithe, if you have a whole lot of tithe to give, that the tithe buys you the right to complain and to give orders. So they use the tithe as a means of gaining influence. If the church or the pastor doesn't go their way, they'll just pull out their tithe and they'll take it elsewhere. Oh, I've seen this happen so many times in churches. I'll just stop tithing. I won't give any money to that church. And I'm straying from the subject a little bit, but do you know that we need this? Do we tithe for influence? You might not like the answer to this question. The tithe buys you nothing. Did you know that? Your tithe buys you nothing. You know why? Because it's not yours. It belongs to God. So how are you going to buy God with it? Buy your way out of service with it. That tithe belongs to God. So a Christian who gives a great tithe is not a great Christian because he gives a great tithe. No, no. He has no rights that are based upon the fact that he gives a tithe. It's not yours, it's God's. Now, in the Old Testament, the people brought their animals, their tithes to the priests. I see no indication they thought that since they did that, that they would, could order the priest and tell him what to do. They had brought no rights uh, by bringing those tithes to the priest. Can you imagine that I would give you, say, $5,000? That's a big imagination, by the way. That I would give you $5,000 and then you would take that $5,000 and try to gain an advantage with me? That you would say, well, I'm not going to give you anything back until you do exactly what I say. 
Well, that wouldn't be right. You know that. But people think the tithe works that way. That God gives me all of these things. It's, it's his money to begin with. So I have the right to bring to the church when I want. I'll give it. And then God or the pastor, whoever, has to do whatever I tell them to do. And they make their tithe a bargaining chip. Now let me stay here for just a minute. In the New Testament, the church is the place for the collection of the tithe. Paul told the Corinthians to gather up their money on the first day of the week because that's the day that they met for corporate worship. And so they're a church gathered on the Lord's Day and that's when they were supposed to bring those tithes. The New Testament shows us that the tithe does not go anywhere but to the church. The church is the depository for the tithe. That means that the tithe does not go to some mission agency somewhere. The tithe does not go to charitable organizations if you want to give above your tithe, there's discretion with that, but the tithe goes into the Lord's place, and that is to his church. Well, where's that tithe going to be spent? It's the church body that has the right to decide, not the individual. So can you split up your tithe and designate that tithe for different things that you wanted to go to? The answer is no, because that tithe does not belong to you. The church determines where the tithe will be spent. So if you want money to go to missionaries, that's great. That's wonderful. Take amounts above your tithe. Use those if you want to, but not your tithe. Now, personally, what I do is I, I give all of my tithes and offerings into the general fund just to let the church use that as it sees fit. If we take a special offering, that's a little bit different. I, I have no problems with designated money in our special offerings. And... Uh, uh, many, many churches practice faith promise giving as a better way of financing missions rather than going through the church treasury anyway as a matter of a budget item. So I don't have a problem with that. But the tithe, the 10% that we're supposed to give, goes into the church for the church to decide where it will be spent. The, the deacon board presents a, uh, a budget every year, and the church body approves that budget, and we have no ability to stick to a budget and pay bills if people designate money and we're bound to honor those designations. Now imagine if we had enough people who said, you know, uh, or, or, or if your house was like this, if your household worked this way, you know something, I like new cars. I like, I like to buy a new car, but I don't like make house payments. So from now on, all of my money is going to go for new car payments, not house payments. How long is that going to last? Not very long. How long do you think it's going to last in the church when people say, well, you know, I like my money to go to missions. I don't like paying the church mortgage. And I don't like paying electric bills. So I'm just going to designate my money to go to the mission field. Well, that's wonderful that you want to do that. But that's impossible for us to run a church and keep it open if we have to honor those kinds of designations. So this, that's another reason why you can't designate your tithe. It goes into the church to be used as the church sees fit. Then, uh, secondly, the administration of the church should have the guts not to let big tithers dictate what the pastor can do and what the pastor can preach. And that happens more often than you think. Pastors are afraid of offending people whose ties are big. And so these are people that rule by proxy through their ties. So in effect, you have unqualified people that run the church. And sometimes the church permits that. Now, since we're telling true stories and facts, I'll tell you another true story. That the way that 
I gained influence in this church was through the tithe. It wasn't intentional on my part. I've always tithed. From the first job that I had when I was just a little boy, my tithe was a dollar, a dollar a week. I took my dollar to church and I gave it. And I've always tithed from the very first time my dad told me I was supposed to do that. And never for a minute did I ever stop and think, whoa, what could I do with all this money? If I just spent it on myself, I never have thought that way because the tithe belongs to the Lord. But I gained influence in the church at first through the tithe. It said I didn't intend to do that, but this is the way that it worked out. That when I became a member of Brian Baptist about 20 years ago, I made about 50% more money than I make today. So I was doing quite well. Uh, I brought my tithe, and at that point, I was the largest giver in the church. That's not for bragging rights. That's just the fact of the way that God blessed me, and I was faithful to give the tithe. Later, I learned that the former pastor of the church took pains not to offend me. I didn't ask for anything, but he tolerated doctrinal differences between us because he was afraid that I was going to take my money and go elsewhere. So once he told me, he said, we agree on about 95% of doctrine. Those of you that were here then, you can be the judge of that, whether that was true. But I, I, I've never been in a church that would do something like that. Pragmatism is not the determiner of church practice. So not long after I became the pastor, I had an encounter with some members who thought that they should be able to control me and get what they wanted because they gave large tithes. And they came to my office to talk to me about this. And this is, as I said, one of the bargaining chips. It had to be the tithe. You don't do this, and here's what's going to happen. Well, I was determined then that this ministry is not going to be run by tithers. It'll be run by the theology of the scriptures. So you're not going to pay me to be quiet about what I believe, what I believe should be preached. And also, nobody is going to receive a position in the church because of how much they give. Now, I will say that if I found not find out that leadership doesn't tithe, that's a disqualifier. You can't buy your way in, but you can sell yourself out. That's for sure. Now, when I used to do church consulting, I was uh, consulting with a large Baptist church in Denver, Colorado. They were in a building project, and sometimes, uh, having seen what went on in that church, I, I wish that we had some of their problems. But there was a man in the church whose tithe was $250,000 a year. That's just his tithe. You imagine how much money he made, but his tithe was $250,000 a year. You imagine if we had that problem here? That'd be serious, wouldn't it? But needless to say, the $250,000 was a huge part of that church budget, and much could be done or not done according to whether the man would give that $250,000. So the reason that I was there in the church for consulting was they were in the middle of a building program, and uh, most of the church members thought that they needed to, to build a new building because of their growth. But the man who gave the $250,000 each year didn't think that they ought to build a new building. Instead, he said, I think we just ought to remodel this one. Now, who do you think won in that argument? It was the man with the $250,000. Well, I talked with the man in part of our counseling work that we did. I, um, I, I talked to different people about the church and how they supported the church. And so I talked with this particular man and and I found out that he disagreed with the pastor on a lot of different issues. 
And this was not uncommon for him to push what he wanted to do through that tithe. So he was controlling the church instead of the pastor leading the church. The man with the money led the church. Not long after that, the pastor of the church left. And the church had too much debt to offend the man that had the, had the large tithe. And so he was the de facto leader. But the pastor of the church left because he could not lead the church. That's a problem that you run into. Now, the moral of the story, I think, would be at this point. That if you have $250,000 that you want to give to the church... Let's talk. Everybody has their price. Okay? So let, let, let's talk. All of that's a little bit sidetracking. <clears throat> my, my point from the very beginning of this is that you can't buy yourself out of sins of omission. You've got to do the thou shalt. If you know to do it and you don't do it, that omission is sin. The Bible says that we are to be merciful. We are to live peaceably with others. We're to walk in love, we're to be kind to one another, speak the truth, work with your hands. I mean, there's just all sorts of commands that we find in the scriptures. And if you, if you keep away from the negative things that it says don't do without doing the positive things that it says to do, that's sin. I said I don't know all 5,000 of the commandments. I'm sure there's some that I don't do. Some that I don't do very well. Some things I don't know that I should do. And uh, some things I do know that I should do, and I still don't do. Did you get all that? And all those 5,000 commandments? Those are sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission. And I need coverage for those sins. So I'm thankful for this, that Jesus did everything that the Father said for him to do. Perfect obedience, no omission of any of the thou shalts, and no commission of the thou shalt nots. And so he became a perfect trespass offering for me who has so much trouble doing both of these things. Committing sins of omission and committing sins of commission. There is a trespass offering for that and that trespass offering is Jesus Christ. Now there's one more category that takes us into the second table of the law. Uh, and in that part there's just a remarkable twist. Um, I alluded to that the last time, we won't get to it for a couple more weeks when Brother Castro, after Brother Castro is here. But I think that we find here just a great study. We don't get a more complete picture of Christ anywhere in the Bible than looking at these sacrifices. Is all of it easy? Well, the answer is no. Uh, Christ did something that was incredibly hard. And I just wonder, can't we just do the study, the difficult parts, to find out what Christ did? So I don't worry about people say, well, that can't be the gospel because it's too hard to understand. There is no validation of the gospel based upon simplicity. The Holy Spirit grants us understanding. The simplest of what God has asked us to do, the simplest understanding of God's will is impossible, impossible to interpret without the Holy Spirit's guidance. He must be in control of all of this. Now... I have to ask a question. When was difficulty of doctrine ever a barrier to the Holy Spirit's ability to show us the truth? It isn't. We apply ourselves and the Holy Spirit will open our hearts to the truth of God's Word. So I'm happy for all the complications that there are in the Scriptures because I don't mind studying them. 
I don't mind spending the time on it. So let others preach in kindergarten if they want to. Let's preach here to raise up men and women who are strong in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for so many blessings that you give. And uh, Lord, it's just a pleasure to look into your word and study all of these things out to find out more about this incredible sacrifice that you made for us and how intricate the details and how interwoven, connected all these parts are. And all of them speak some wonderful truth about you. Lord, that's what we want to do, find out more about the God that we love and we serve. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.